Hello and welcome to UWO Now. UWO Now is the place where we talk about relevant and interesting topics with the students, staff, faculty, and alumni at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. In September, Queen Elizabeth II passed. She was 96 years old and here to talk to us about our fascination with the royals and why many people care about what they do about their lives and their relevance and importance to the people of the UK is Michael Rutz, who is the chair of the history department at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. Thanks so much, Michael, for coming by and talking to us today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Before we talk about the royals, uh, let's talk about you. Uh, what's your path to UWO? How did you get here? Um, and um, what is your area of concentration that uh, you teach or that you research uh, at uh, UWO? Sure. Um, well, I've been at UWO now. This is the start of my 20th year. I came here in 2002, joined the history department. Um, prior to that, um, I'm a Midwesterner by background. I grew up in uh, Michigan, uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Went to the University of Michigan for undergrad uh, and did my graduate work at Washington University in St. Louis. When I finished my PhD there in, in British and African history in 2002, I was fortunate enough to, to be offered the opportunity to come here to UWO and join the department. Um, so, um, you know, I got into doing British history, I suppose, through uh, a kind of interest as probably uh, many folks do, the early history of the United States and the American Revolution and that kind of time period. And okay. As an undergrad, I got a little interested in thinking about what was happening in the UK on the other side uh, around that time. You All know, right. we sort of hear about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and uh, the various figures connected to kind of what was happening over here, but what was going on over there? What did people over there think about it? And um, that got me into doing some undergraduate research related to uh, the history of the UK in the late 1700s. And from there, it just kind of spiraled into going to graduate school and working on a doctorate and, and doing British history. Uh, and here I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now the most wanted man on campus to provide some information about the royals and uh, who they are and why they are who they are and all that goes along with it. There seems to be and always has been, I think, just not knowing anything, but just what I observe. Uh, a high level of interest with the royal family. And as I mentioned, who they are, what they're doing, why they're doing it, all the intrigue and mystery surrounding uh, the people who occupy uh, these positions going back in history centuries. Uh, what is it about their particular family that intrigues the world? It's a good question. I think I think today part of it is is just the nature of celebrity, right? They're prominent figures. They uh, have had a long-standing role as public figures, uh, and so part of it is in a celebrity age, you know, famous people get attention, and so I think that's part of it. But I think for Queen Elizabeth II, and to some degree for the royal family as well, uh, there's a broader appeal that comes from the kind of longevity of it, right? She was a she was a figure on the world stage for 70 years. Mm -hmm. um, if you go back to the, essentially the origins of the monarchy in early medieval England, we're talking about a 
thousand year history of the crown. Um, so that longevity, I think, is something that sparks a kind of, of interest and curiosity. Who, who are these people and what is this office that has been around for such a long time that has been kind of this fixture? And in a sense, kind of what is its staying power, uh, I think is an interesting sort of question um, that, that uh, sort of piques people's curiosity. And, you know, I think for us as Americans, given our historical ties to the UK, there's a little bit of a kind of fascination that's at work there too. Like uh, these these could have been our, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, leading figures as well, if not for, you know, what happened in, in 1776 and onward. And so so that historical connection probably also makes uh, Americans sort of, in some ways, I think, kind of curious to, to know sort of what's going on uh, with the royal family and with the monarchy. Now, that's what's going on in America and how we feel yeah. about it. And maybe even uh, the broader international community may feel the same way. But how about in the UK. Mm-hmm. Talk about this image, this um, relevance of the royal family today mm-hmm. uh, in the 2000s. What, why does it still, what's the relevance to, of the royal family in Great Britain today? And why is, what's, what's, the, what's the position there? Yeah. Um, well, it's a, obviously a position that's changed enormously uh, over the course of history, in particular the last four or five hundred years, right? Uh, the monarch was, you know, for a long period of time, the political ruler and, and supreme sort of power and authority. And when did that stop? Um, when did that basically stop? That's a, that's a tricky question. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, you could argue going all the way back to the 13th century and Magna Carta when the, the mm-hmm. king's barons rose up and first sort of articulated the idea that there were limitations on the power of the crown, that that at least those who were prominent men in English society had certain rights that the crown couldn't encroach upon. I mean, you move forward from there to the 17th century, the Civil War, the Glorious Revolution. That's when this institution of Parliament begins to kind of assert itself as uh, a uh, taking a prominent role in the actual uh, exercising of political power. Um, and it's really by the early 1800s, maybe a couple hundred years ago, that we finally start to kind of see that final transition where uh, kind of democratic style institutions, representative institutions behind the idea of parliament begin to kind of assert this is where actual political decision making is really going to happen. And the monarch begins to shift more to that just sort of ceremonial kind of role. Now that ceremonial role still has significance and importance um, in the sense that- And power? not power in the sense of exercising political decision-making, right? The, and in fact, the, the monarch really now is expected to, to sort, of, sort of put up a face of neutrality and not express their own political opinions and not exercise political power. What the monarch does still have is a kind of ceremonial importance and power. And I guess what I mean by that is that one of the unique things about the UK is that they, like us, they do not have uh, 
I should say, unlike us, they do not have a, a written constitution. Right? We have a constitution which sort of spells out, mm -hmm. here's in writing our rights, yeah. the government's powers, the, the limitations power, on yeah. those powers, the divisions of that power. Um, again, going back to that idea that the, the, the crown has been around for over a thousand years, in Britain it's been more of a kind of we do things the way that we've sort of always done them and we just keep doing them. So nobody ever wrote that down in a kind of like, here's a real documented, okay. right? Again, there are key moments, the Magna Carta, the Bill of Rights from 1688. Um, but they take a kind of pride in this unwritten constitution. We, we do the things that we've traditionally done and we continue to do them. And that, that gives a kind of legitimacy to them. And, the, the crown does play an important role there, even if it's now just ceremonial. Uh, the queen, or going forward now the king, right, will appear at the opening of parliament and all dressed up and sit there and read a speech that's written by the government and doesn't express his or her own political views. It's just performing the ceremony. And in a sense, if you think of the operations of the government as kind of like a machine, um, the monarch still is sort of one of the cogs that kind of helps that all go by way of being there at the particular appointed times to go through the ceremonial actions that kind of keep things moving forward. And I suppose this is, uh, this is pertinent just to looking at last week, right? The last sort of public appearance and the sort of last image of Elizabeth II was her meeting with Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, the, the outgoing and the incoming new prime minister, right? Now, unlike 300 years ago, the queen doesn't choose who they want to be <laughs> the prime minister anymore. Um, but that idea that the legitimacy of that transfer of power comes not from like a constitutional oath like we do with our presidents, but from the formal act of meeting with the queen and the queen saying, yes, you can form a government, right? So mm -hmm. the, the monarch doesn't exercise power in a real political sense anymore, but they kind of play this important role of keeping the traditional operation of things going. And is that unique in the world? It's a little bit unique, I think. Um, I think that that if you were to look at other constitutional monarchies or say, other European nations that have monarchs, um, they will do some similar kinds of things. Um, but I think the, again, the kind of longevity with which you could argue there's a kind of, you know, thousand year long tradition that you're drawing here on the, the British crown um, does make it a little bit unique and a little bit different. There's certainly a, a kind of permanence to the sense of the British monarchy that doesn't quite exist for, for other European nations that still have monarchs that form that, that, that play that kind of ceremonial role. I, I read something on Thursday when the news was breaking and so forth, right? That someone made the comment that, uh, you know, someone had come up to them and said, the queen died and they knew exactly who, they were who this person was talking about. Right. There's only kind of one, the queen, mm -hmm. in a sense, even though there are obviously monarchs and queens and other, say, European nations and so forth. So I think that 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 longevity and, you know, it harkens back to the old sort of global power of Britain, 
um, does put it on a kind of unique and different level. I want to talk a little bit about that as yeah. well. Uh, you're listening to UWO Now. I'm Wendell Ray, Dr. Michael Rutz, chair of the history department at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, is our guest today. Um, what will, now you mentioned that there is this face of neutrality, certainly that I think uh, Queen Elizabeth II certainly um, kept up. Uh, do you anticipate Charles will continue that? Uh, or people have wondered what his uh, reign will be like. Will he just be a continuation of his mother? Right. Or will he uh, modernize some approaches and relationships to the people of the United Kingdom? My guess is that it's going to be a little bit of both. And I think if you were to, to take a look at the, now he's made a couple of public speeches and statements over the last few days. And I think if you look at those, you can see that, that it's, it's going to be a little bit of both. If you listen to the words that he's saying, um, you hear a lot about the way in which his mother saw the role of the monarch uh, and the way in which she uh, was dedicated to performing her public service, to fulfilling her duties and obligations, and 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 performing that kind of um, that kind of neutrality, so that the monarch can be a, a symbol for all Britons to look at, right? Not just one particular faction or one particular group. Um, and and he was very explicit in saying, you know. I, I will continue this. I will I will do the same as she did. And I think I, I think that's I think that's genuine. I think it's partly calculated on his part as well, right? Mm -hmm. I think he understands that he comes to the throne with maybe not quite the same kind of sentiment of popularity and warm feelings that his mother had yeah. for various reasons. Um and so I think we will, in continuity, you will see him very much leaning into the idea of expressing, I am going to do the same sorts of things that my mother did. And he even said explicitly, I realize that being the, the sovereign was the term that he used, being the monarch um, is different from what I've been doing for the rest of my life. And so I think you will see his some of his outspokenness and, and political points of views moderated. But where I think you will maybe see some change, and we saw this again in the last few few days as well, um, the actual um, sort of ceremony of the accession, the, the sort of proclamation of his um, status as the new king uh, and the accession council, as it's called, which is this sort of official group that, um, that uh, gives its approval, so to mm -hmm. speak, to that uh, change of power, um, was televised live for the first time. Right. Ever. Um, and so I think you will say maybe some things like that of like, we're going to try to kind of open up and make a little bit more transparent some of these sorts of things to make the monarchy seem more accessible. But I think Charles also knows that on some level, what kept the kind of stability of his mother's popularity was that kind of steadfast sort of neutral commitment to her public duty and obligations. And I think he'll try to, to, he'll try to emulate that to try to earn some of that same kind of goodwill that his mother had. 
You're listening to UWO Now. I'm your host, Wendell Ray. Dr. Michael Rutz is our guest as we discuss the royal family, uh, past and present. We'll be back with more UWO following this message. 